Let's pray together. Lord, we are overwhelmed uh, this morning as we think about your amazing love for us. It awes us that we can call you Father. That you've rescued us from our sin and you've taken us into your family. You've adopted us as sons and daughters. Those of us who have received your grace, we know of your great love for us. And Lord, I pray for those who are here who maybe uh, have not made that decision yet to enter into your family by faith, by placing their lives in your hands, trusting you with their salvation. I pray today would be the day. Lord, we're, we're amazed at your love. How could it be that you would love us? And yet you do. And so we thank you that we're reminded of that today the core of our identity and who we are. We've been made new by you as sons and daughters in your family. So I pray that you would speak, Lord, to us now as we open your word. May we never be the same. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. His amazing love. Wow, the choir and orchestra sound great today. Thank you so much. And you all, uh, as, as we often reference the greater choir, it's been an incredible day. We've been walking through this series we've called Brand New as we kick off this new year. And we've talked about a brand new start. That was our first Sunday in January. And then uh, last week, a brand new identity that we have in Christ. Today, I want to talk about the brand new family. The Bible says when you enter into, by faith, you receive Christ, you come into God's family. This amazing love that he, he brings us in, he becomes our father. So just look around you, look up here in the choir, we look at each other, you are with those who've received Christ, brothers and sisters. Just kind of take a moment to look around. These are brothers and sisters in the family, every one of us. I'm curious, how many of you grew up with brothers or sisters in your family? Maybe even now you're Growing up with brothers, that'd be a lot of us. You know, there's a lot that's uh, a lot that's been said, a lot of research, study done about birth order. I want you to think about where you fall there in the birth order. If you're a firstborn, you're a stereo- stereotypical firstborn. You're a natural leader. You're ambitious. You're responsible. Um, now, the firstborn can have high expectations placed on them that aren't put on the others, right? And some of you firstborn know this. But uh, the firstborn is, is often that kind of type A leader. Not always, but it's often the case. The middle child is, is that mediator, a consensus builder, kind of the social butterfly oftentimes, a peacekeeper because of the position that they play in the family. They're obsessed with fairness and, and they, they, they get along with a lot of different kinds of people generally. Now, the youngest is often free-spirited kind of risk taker without the restrictions of the previous children, right? And so they, they've, you know, they've, they're often the entertainers, the baby. Uh, they're charming, you know, at times. Now, a lot comes into play, and as I've studied this even recently this week, um, less and less is being made of birth order these days. And, and, and any of the studies are more about temperament, gender, age spacing, and what if you have multiple middles? Um, you know, where do you come into play there? But I just wonder, what's your place in the family? Where do you find your place? And though, again, many discount this kind of thing. As I thought about this uh, the past couple of weeks, I'm, I'm a conventional, traditional middle child. Because I literally have an older brother and a younger brother. That's our family. And I'm the middle child. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm a peacekeeper, consensus builder, mediator. And you can imagine, at times, my role as a pastor requires that, that kind of, of personality. Um, but for all of us, 
Uh, I want us today to consider um, where we find ourselves in the big family. Now, in terms of birth order, I'm talking about God's family now. Uh, You and I, I suppose some have said we're somewhere around the fifth or sixth billionth person that has joined the family of God over time because we're a part of the big church family from the very beginning. And today we're going to look at Paul. We've been looking at Paul and his life and uh, highlights or spot, you know, snapshots in his life. And today we're going to look at Paul and relationships that he then enters into in this new family where he finds himself. So today, admittedly, kind of a narrative, historical narrative that we're going to walk through, not an epistle. We're going to walk through portion of the book of Acts. So I want you to go ahead and turn there as we talk about this brand new family. I want you to turn to Acts chapter 15. And if you uh, have come to Christ, you're part of this new family, God, our father, and we're all uh, a part of this big family connected to the very first disciples. So these are our people. Uh, And the question I want to ask you today is, where is your place in the family? Do you ever wonder, some of us here, we wonder, how do I fit into the family of God? And maybe you've been here a long time. Maybe you're new. You wonder, what is my role And we have opportunities to help you there. But today, if you listen to this message and and seek always with a view towards application, this will change your life. This message, God's word will change your life if you seek to apply what we'll learn here today. Because what I want you to see is that every member of God's family is called to protect the unity of the body. We're called to pass on the teaching of the body. We're called to pursue those outside the body Uh, or the family, and we're called to participate in the family business. And so uh, I want us to unpack this. First, I want you to see that we're to protect unity in the body. Now, to place this in context, we've jumped from earlier on in Acts, and now we're in Acts 15. You can look. In fact, I do want everyone to have Scripture open. I'll show you the verses here, but uh, lots of Scripture today. But I want you to have the Bible open. And if you have your own Bible, or maybe even a Bible in the pew there, Uh, You could look at a map along the way. I don't have a map for you today, but this would help you. If you don't know the Bible lands or Paul's missionary journeys, it can be kind of complex and and, and complicated. But we're going to look at his second missionary journey. He just come back from his first and they, they went to Jerusalem. Paul and Barnabas have been traveling together, missionary type partners, ministry partners. They're coming from Jerusalem in chapter 15, just prior to what we're going to look at today, has come the greatest moment of unity in this early church. Because at the Jerusalem council in, in, uh, in, in uh, Acts 15, what happened was there, there was a great conflict within the church. Because church people had conflict back then, evidently. And so uh, they, they had this, this idea that you had to become a Jew first uh, in order to be a believer. And so think about this. Early on in the church, there's this great division. And James, so church leaders step in. Paul and Barnabas have successfully, all of our attorneys here, argued for the case that you don't have to be a Jew in order to become a, 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 a believer. You can be a Gentile and become. There's not this, this mediating you know, or, or mediary kind of moment in, in between. You don't have to be circumcised to become a believer was a big part of it. So salvation comes to all. This is a major shift in the, in the family of God, right? The, the redemptive narrative throughout all the Old Testament. And now this is a huge deal. Paul will speak of this a lot in the book of Romans and other places. So we can, we can imagine what he argued as this great theological mind 
uh, himself a kind of attorney, always arguing, an apologist, arguing for truth. And so they come up with what is now the biggest moment in their work together, Paul and Barnabas, uh, in terms of a practical you know, moment where they've helped bring the church along. And then all of a sudden, everything goes sideways. Look at verse 36. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, hey, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. So let's go back from this first missionary journey. Let's go back, track back to all these churches where now they're planted and let's go see how they are. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with him, uh, with them, John called Mark. We kind of know him as John Mark. He's known as Mark in some other spots. Um, Not the gospel writer, but John Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. So basically, right at the beginning of this journey, John, Mark, uh, Barnabas, Luke is going to be a part of this deal as well. He's the writer here. But watch this. Uh, this is, John, Mark is Barnabas' cousin. There's another little added piece there when our family members come into play. But John, Mark decides to go home. Barnabas thinks this is a great, uh, no big deal, uh, what, what John, Mark's done. Paul thinks it's a very big deal. And in fact, the word that's used for withdrawn here is actually the word apostasy, apostate. It means to abandon the faith. So we don't know all of the details here, but Paul said, no, 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 brother's not going with us, not this time. And so there's this disagreement and it says here in verse 39, and there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. So this leads to a very sharp disagreement. The language here is, I mean, there's anger. This is characterized by, you know, exasperation. Words are exchanged is what's happening. So after this great moment of unity, it looks like we have a church divided. Look at verse 40. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. So there's counsel, there's others involved. And we went, or he went, through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So they go from the greatest moment, victory of unity, Paul and Barnabas high-fiving each other, fist bumping each other, leaving the Jerusalem council, and, and now it looks like a mess. But wait. We're missing the larger picture because the lesson that we're going to see here, this is now always seeking towards application here. The presence of conflict doesn't mean the absence of unity. The presence of conflict doesn't mean the absence of unity. Look what happens. Instead of one missionary journey, now we've got two going out. You see that? And the greater mission of the church is accomplished. See, sometimes God uses even our disagreements to advance the gospel. We need to remember that in moments of debate. Disagreement doesn't have to mean disunity. We, we speak to our married couples. Uh, I'm thinking of Dylan and Michaela. They're, they're, they're going to get married. Unity doesn't mean that you don't disagree. It means that you're committed to what's higher, the more important thing. What's the more important thing? In marriage, it's the unity of the relationships, the health of relationship. In the church, it's Christ and his mission that guides us. Not my preference, not my opinion up against yours. And we want to talk about that a little bit. In fact, I know churches, if you've been around here in this area, in fact, 
for very long, or maybe you've got your own stories, churches who've split. There's a church right here in our neighborhood. Years ago, the church split. Now, could argue that two great, vibrant churches. And that's what happens. I'm not saying that a church split is the best, most advantageous church planning strategy, because there's a mess involved in that. Lots of hurt and pain, neighbor, neighbor, and family members. And some of us have been a part of that kind of thing. But what happens when we pursue Christ and his mission, we can press on continuing to love each other. And and, and this is what happens here. Paul and Barnabas, they will remain friends, in fact. Now, you can imagine, if you're new around here, um, in our church, you know, a church like ours, it's it's a very diverse church, cross-generational church, praise be to God. I love the fact that we're not just all young, you know, church. We're not all older. We are across the board. And you can imagine throughout our history, uh, there've been different opinions about (laughs) how things ought to be done. And I want you to know, especially if you're a guest, as we navigate these things together, we do so with Christ as the head of our church, not the pastor, not a staff or a group of deacons. Christ is the head. So we pursue him. We seek him in prayer together, united, and the mission is what drives our or informs our, our, our decisions. How can we best accomplish this? You may or may not know, if you had, a lot of you joined our church since 2006, for instance. 2006, we started uh, a service in the Great Hall. Now, you might imagine prior to that, there's lots of prayer and lots of decision making around that through key leaders, but uh, some churches split over something like that. Churches split over music styles or over the color of the carpet. I mean, you've heard crazy stories. Satan gets into a body and he wants to split and destroy what happens. Instead, we decided as we pressed on, we said, hey, you know what? The goal is not to to have a particular style or form or music. The goal is for all people to worship Jesus. Let's look at the higher purpose and let's move towards that. And together, let's do that. And praise be to God, that's what our church has done across the life and history of our church. As a result, we have two vibrant church uh, services going on today, right now. And and in fact, three with one in the gym and and our our Hispanic friends uh, from Premier Iglesia Bautista are meeting in the chapel right now. Why? The goal is worship, Not, not form or style. And so we celebrate the diversity. In fact, right now, we've had past couple of weeks, you can rejoice, we rejoice. There's been over a thousand people in the Great Hall. I say that, the Great Hall doesn't fit a thousand people. So we've got a challenge. There's another innovative, challenging moment. What are we going to do? Because we must continue to reach more and more people. And so we address this together. And I just, I give our church high marks on coming together when there's differences of opinion or conflict because out of conflict can arise uh, in the church different opinions and such that lead us to God's direction. And that's what happens here. The mission of God and the advancement of the gospel is always the greater good. So we remember, you know, you, you enter into conflict and do this in your own. I want you to think about your own life. Maybe you're in conflict with someone. We lead with love. We listen well, we protect unity and we pursue health of relationship and we sacrifice for it. And so here's, here's what Dr. King said about this. It's not enough to say we must not wage war. It is necessary to love peace, 
and sacrifice for it. We pursue peace. We're not just peacekeepers. Jesus said we're peacemakers. And so even there, when it comes to racial uh, justice, social justice and reconciliation, I hear people, in fact, all of us, you know, I would certainly hope, I would believe, I've never heard anyone say, well, you know, I'm a racist. That's just how I, go, how I roll. I'm a racist. Um, I've never heard anybody say that. I mean, everyone would say, oh, I'm not a racist. But here's what I've learned through the years. I challenge you with this. Are you an anti-racist? That's a different thing. One could be very passive. One is very uh, active, proactive, you see. So now in the case of Paul and Barnabas, scripture here doesn't say who was right or wrong. It doesn't say if there was sinful intent behind the disagreement. But what we do see here is that Paul and Barnabas remained friends. I don't even know that. If we play this story out, the two of them remain friends. He speaks favorably of Barnabas in, in 1 Corinthians 9, for instance. Actually, John Mark he later says in 2 Timothy, look at this. He says, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark, John Mark, and bring him with you for he is very useful to me in ministry. So you see, they didn't write each other off as brothers. There may have been conflict. They went different ways. But friends, there's always gonna be conflict. Again, I want you to think about your own life. You know, someone said to avoid conflict, say nothing, do nothing, be nothing. That's how you avoid conflict. And so we enter into conflict in relationship. We don't run from it. Paul directs, he, he confronts it directly. If you know much about Paul, you're not surprised by that, right? But it's healthy for us to do so in relationship. And especially in this cultural moment that we learn how to listen well, to be peacemakers. And in an election year for us to lead the way. And so what we can do often in relationships is change the wind. Remember that. Change the win. It's not about your being right or getting your way. There's always a greater purpose. There's always a greater hope. And as the, as the unity of the church then is protected, it creates an environment within which what's happening in our church today, where we can learn, we can disciple others, we can hear the teaching. So the next thing I want you to see here, we're going to see in scripture, pass on the teaching of the family. First, protect the unity. Now pass on the teaching of the family. Now Paul and Silas head back. So again, hang with me, historical narrative. Look at verse, 15, uh, verse one out of chapter 16. Paul came also to Derby and to, Ly and to Lystra. So again, if you can watch a map, we're heading, we're heading westward um, out of what's known as Asia. Really, it's the real far west corner of what we call Asia, but the province there is called Asia. A disciple was there named Timothy. Now we're introduced to Timothy, who becomes a key player in the early church and in the New Testament. The son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was Greek. He was, he was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. So here again, Timothy's introduced you know much or if you read the scriptures much, Timothy was raised by a godly grandmother and mother. Anybody know their names? The grandmother was Lois and the mother's name was Eunice. Okay, two great names for those of y'all looking for names for kids. Um, don't hear a lot of Loises or Eunices, but you'd be, you know, really progressive. Come back around. So to know, but he knows the scriptures and he, he's worshiping the Lord and he comes to, to Jesus. And so now Paul wanted him, look at verse three, wanted Timothy to accompany him and he took him, uh-oh, and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places where they're going. For they all knew that his father was Greek. Now, this little tender moment here, but um, 
I mean, we could talk for a while about Timothy's real commitment to the gospel and to the advancement of the gospel. He's circumcised. Some scholars believe he's probably 20, in his 20s at this point. And then I thought, man, some people refuse to get baptized in our day. But he does so, so as not to be a barrier to others, whatever it takes to reach those who are lost. So Timothy goes on to pastor a church in Ephesus at a very young age. And we read about what Paul thinks of him in Philippians 2, uh, verse 20 through 22. And he's a man of great quality, becomes this great leader. The great thing about Timothy, here's the point. He's not just a, a, a great guy who learns more and more about Jesus and continues to be a great guy. And it happens for some of us. He's a great, a great young man who learns about Jesus and then he's passing it on to others. That's what he's called all of us to do. Look at, look at verse two. And what you, well, no, in, in 2 Timothy, I pulled this because this is what Paul challenged him with. What you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men and women who will be able to teach others also. That's the role of every one of us. The conduit of teaching and grace that's poured into us is to be poured out of us into the lives of others. We protect the unity of the body, but we also, every one of us, pass on the teaching of the family that we're a part of. And this is what he does. And so we see that, that Timothy, he becomes this great leader following after Paul who is discipling him. I want you to pause for a moment as I did this week. Every one of us came into this room because of a Paul, because of someone, Lois, Eunice, godly family, or others who poured into our lives. I want you to pause for a moment and think about that. The people who've impacted your life. I want names and faces to come into your mind. I was praising the Lord this week. Coach Bill Cordell, I'm in eighth grade. Uh, Dr. Carl Bates, who helped, uh, you know, he baptized me. My grandfather, Dr. C.C. Warren, my dad, my mom, godly people who poured into my life, came to faith in my grandfather's house. I think of uh, Mary Glover, who was my, my youth minister. I think of Don Brock, who mentored me as a young man right out of college. I think of Don Mincy, who was my young life leader. I think of people in my life. I think of folks now, even in our church, who poured into my life. Friends that I have and mentors even now. Who comes to mind for you? It would be a good thing to pause and to say thank you to the Lord. And if you can, even today, to pause and say thank you. Blame it on your pastor. Send a text. Write a note. Say, I just... I just was reminded of how you've impacted my life. And I praise God for you. Thank your connect group leaders. Thank your, those who are caring for your kids. Praise God for the ministers who the Lord has brought here on our staff who serve us so faithfully. But always thinking of having someone younger, doesn't matter how young you are, have others younger than you where you're pouring into them the things that you've heard in the presence of many witnesses. These entrust to others who can be able to teach others. Also, because the gospel travels at the speed of relationships, one person at a time. We're praying for our students as they head off to Getaway Weekend, formerly D now, but we're going to uh, be celebrating what God is doing. We pour into their lives. I've said it before. You know, some of us, man, what's up with this next generation? That's always been the case. We don't have a millennial problem. We don't have a Gen Z problem. We have a discipleship problem. That we're not pouring into the next generation. We're all the young people. 
Let me ask you, who are you investing in? Who are you pouring into? We've got to be raising up the next generation. Now look at verse four. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been made or been reached by the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem. So that was in, again, Jerusalem 15 earlier, that everybody is welcome into the family so that churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. So as they passed the gospel on, mentored others, disciple others, the gospel advances And I would just ask you, pause for a moment. Who are you discipling? Because we're called to be disciple makers. The great commission is that we go make disciples. That's every person pouring into others. Who's that in your life? So we don't just focus on those who are in the family. We pass on the teaching, but we also focus on and pursue those outside the family. Look at this. Pursuing those outside the family. Verse 6. And they went through the region of Phrygia, or Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Again, that's, the, that's a, a province there. And when they had come up to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bethania. But the spirit of, of Jesus, how about that spirit, the Holy Spirit did not allow them to. Now, Paul, his goal is to go back, strengthen the churches that he planted. And he does that a bit, but for some reason, they're, they're challenged and prevented from returning to some of them. So how did he know? Well, the spirit of Jesus prevented us from going. How, how do you know what the will of God is? We know he's with others. He had discernment with Silas and others. But oftentimes, God's will, here's the principle. God's will is often discerned through a series of permissions and prohibitions. Now, he doesn't just lead via circumstances, though he does, but always aligning with God's word. Probably the question I'm asked as a pastor, it happened this week, I had lunch with a, with a gentleman, young man who is, is saying, I don't know what the Lord wants me to do here. I get asked the question often, what's God's will for my life? Okay, in varying, varying ways. I'm trying to discern what's God's will for my life. And I always say this now, uh, that's a good question, not the best question. There's a question that precedes that question. The question is not, what is God's will for my life? The question is, what is God's will? What is he doing? What is he up to in the world? Join him in that. How does that bring a framework to your understanding of what you ought to do? What is he up to? Join him in what he's doing. And whatever decision you're seeking to make, how will it glorify him? How will it continue to pursue those outside the body, continue to to advance the gospel? So look at verse eight. So passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas. And again, if you have a map, you'll, you'll see this. Now we're on the far edge of what we would call Asia. I mean, it goes all the way over. What is that? We got India, we got Russia, we got China, all the way over to Japan, Korea. But this is the far west corner. And and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we, okay, Luke is writing this, we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, I like that. I kind of giggle as I read that. Paul has a vision of a man saying, come to Macedonia. 
And then we, we concluded that maybe God was calling us to Macedonia, right? And see, some of us would go, if I had a vision, if God gave me a vision, maybe I would go somewhere. Maybe I would go share the gospel. I'll give you a vision. All you got to do is close your eyes. Close your eyes, like even now, close your eyes and consider people in your life right now. Think about your neighbor. Think about your coworker. Think about people in the workplace, people where you live. Think about people in your life. Think about family members. Think about all you've got. To, you want an image? You want a vision? Look at your phone. Look at your pictures. Look at your Facebook feed. Look at your Instagram posts. Look at people that you're connected with. Look around you. And let me ask you, you can open your eyes, but let me ask you, who's your Macedonian man? Who is it? God is giving us a vision. Who's your one? And look, verse 10, as he's prompted by the spirit immediately, he doesn't wait and wonder, I, you know, I wonder if I should go encourage that person. I wonder if maybe God planted them on my heart for some reason. Maybe, no, maybe it was dinner that I ate. Maybe it wasn't God prompting me to go and love this person and tell them about Jesus. You see, the point is we, we wait for a vision. Walk across the room to people we already know. Be a faithful presence. And so we, we, we protect the unity of the body. We pass on the teaching of, of the family and we pursue those outside the family. And then finally, to close with this, participate in the family business. That's, that's all Paul and Luke and Silas, Timothy are doing. They're on mission with him. And I've been thinking a lot about this. What does that mean? What does that look like? And I want to help you as we close our time together to get real practical here. But it means being faithful presence wherever he places you this week. That's really what it comes down to. But look at verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we, Luke and others, made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi. Now, you know that, that one, there here comes, it, which is a leading city on, uh, or of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. Now we're, we just crossed over. If you look at a map, now we're in Europe. First time, no longer in Asia. Now we're in Europe. Look at this. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had gathered there. They'd come together. Now there's no synagogue, evidently. That's where Paul would launch his preaching ministry always. Some scholars believe. So you had to have 10 Jewish men in a town in order to have a synagogue. Perhaps there were not that many there in Philippi. We're getting a long way from Jerusalem now. And, and so Paul goes to this area, finds it. Now look at verse 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul said, what he was saying. So he's sharing the gospel. She receives Christ and after she's baptized and her, and her household as well. She urges us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, like if you think my faith is legit, if you think my commitment to Christ is real, you come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. This is a way of saying she would not take no for an answer. 
We see a little bit about Lydia here. We learn a lot about her just in what we know here, but we see a bit about her personality and her business acumen and her passion for Jesus. She said, come on, come on. You come to my house because I want to be a part of this. Now, this woman is a professional businesswoman, seemingly wealthy from what we know about uh, her work. She's probably this kind of VP of sales. She's from uh, she's, she's, she's from Thyatira, but she's now over and crossed the way over there in Europe. She becomes the first person on European soil to receive the gospel that we know of by name. She's a woman. She's single, perhaps no mention of a husband. She may be a widow, but she's a single woman, person of influence, using her platform focused on ministry. That's a word for every woman here. Every single woman, perhaps every widow, you can be a person of great influence in the gospel. Paul had Barnabas, Paul had Silas, Paul now has Lydia. And her home becomes a headquarters for ministry. Friends, listen to this. This is for all of us. Your home can be a headquarters of ministry. Your home. Listen, because here's the truth. And I think it was John Stott said this. An open heart is an open home. An open heart is an open home. And I praise God for so many in our family, our church family, who open their homes every week to crew for our students who have groups across North Dallas. I, I think of the many families and places where Stacy and I have been in your homes for dinner and, and small groups that come out of our connect groups. And we have small groups that meet in homes. And it, it's just amazing how, how generous our people are. But I want you to see this. The story here is this Macedonian man in the vision is actually an Asian woman. <laughs> if you want to put a name on it. The Macedonian man is, is really a people group. And so I'd ask you, as we think about the week ahead and think about your life, who are you seeking to reach? Who has God placed on your heart? Who are those people you have a passion for? He's put them in your life. Now the gospel will go west into Europe. Paul has now another person. And as we've watched him throughout this time interact with different people in this new family, we see that we're all called to protect the unity of the body. We're we're called to to pass on the teaching, to pursue people outside the body, the family, and to participate in the family business. This is what Lydia now does. And to close our time, real practical, I'm going to show you a diagram. I want this to be etched in your mind. You might want to write it down, but I think you remember this. First, we find ourselves in the middle. That's me right there. That's you. If you are a part of the family of God. And then we have Paul. We've talked about this. Who's your Paul? Everyone in this room needs a Paul. Even me, someone, all of us speaking into our lives. Someone who's walked before us, who can disciple us. And then we all need a Barnabas next to us. We need a coworker in the faith. We need someone to encourage us. Who is that in your life? Name that person. In fact, acknowledge that person. Tell them even today, again, how grateful you are. Who is Barnabas, Silas? Who's Lydia in your life? I think of people in my life. I think of Jonathan. I think of of Dan. I think of Don. Stacy knows all these people in my life who I come alongside, who are walking with me, who encourage me. People and men on our staff, uh, Rodney and Stephen and others who we do life together. We encourage each other. Who, Who is it in your life? We need people to keep us accountable. We need people to kick us in the pants every now and then. Who, who challenge us. And we all need a Timothy in our lives. We all need to be able to pour into the lives of others. Who is the Timothy in your life? Who is it? For Paul, it was Timothy. For Lydia, it was her household. 
It was, you know, others in her life. Maybe it's siblings. Maybe it's your grandkids. How intentional are you being? Who are you pouring into? And then we all, all should have the Macedonian man. We should all be praying and seeking the Lord. For Lydia, it seemed like it was, it was probably Thyatira. She's going to go back to her hometown. I think of John Parker in our church. For him, it's South Texas. <laughs> I think of people like Larry Richardson or Nancy Rockwell. It's South Dallas. I think of people like Terry Hurd. What's what's, who's the Macedonian man? People of victory. And so many of you who serve across our city. I think of those uh, who have served so faithfully, like Suzanne Griffin and others who, who would say, man, it's people in West Dallas. It's people in Africa. It's people. Who has God placed on your heart? Every one of us should have a people, a person, a community. Maybe it's a nation that he's called you to. This is life. What you see here in this diagram here. This is life in community. Guarded by unity. Constantly seeking what's best for the body. So, again, in terms of birth order, we might be the fifth or sixth billionth person to come into the family. But where is your place in the family? I want to say it's right here. Right there in that diagram. That's where you belong. And without you, the gospel would not advance because the gospel moves at the speed of relationships. And God put people in your life so that we can advance the gospel all to his glory. You want to find your place? That's it. So what are you going to do? I want us to pray together as we close our time and as we celebrate what Jesus has done for us. Friend, I want you to just with your eyes closed, I've asked you to imagine, envision your life. But now we've got to act. Some of you are not, you've not yet received Christ. And friend, I, I, I can't be clearer than to say, if you have not yet received his grace, the fact that he died on the cross for your sin, you're not a part of the family of God. You created in his image, he loves you, but you're not in the family. So receive his grace now. By faith, say yes to him. Thank him for dying on the cross for you. Enter into the big family of God. And for the others of us, or maybe even you, you've come to Christ, but you're not a part of the family, the local family, the visible family of God, the church. Today's your day to join the church. Be bold, be courageous, act on what the Spirit's prompting you to do. Some of you to be baptized. And then for all of us to consider Who are we pouring into? Whose lives are we investing in as a disciple maker? And who might be Lydia, the Macedonian man in our lives? Lord, lead us as a church to be the church. Each of us doing our part as you have led us to do. So Lord, we love you. We thank you for the example of Paul. And we praise you for how he's taught us today, how your word, your spirit has taught us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.